all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome to 2017 and the SLS Cast! Yes! It's 2017, people! It is the SLS cast. And not only is it all of these things, it's also episode 213. Yes, even when we're not here, we're still here. Weekly episodes coming at you all through the holiday season, which we hope you enjoyed. We hope your Christmas was merry and your new year happy. But of course, before we get to anything else, you must know, you must know, that this, despite being the first episode of 2017, and episode 213, is of course the American Hip Hop episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that there was an American Hip Hop trio from Long Beach, California, composed of Snoop Dogg, Warren G, and Nate Dogg. And their name was... Two... One, three. Yes, that's right, folks. And with that wonderful little bit of American hip-hop trio knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our sickly Sony employee. (coughs) (coughs) So true, Tim. (laughs) Well, Happy New Year, Tim. Happy New Year, Matthew. How are you doing? I am apparently doing much better than you at this exact moment. Well, you were sick as well, weren't you, for a period of time? Never! Never mind what I told you behind the curtain ten minutes ago. I was never sick. What? Never. (laughs) No, I, I, yeah, apparently, uh, you coming to Texas caused everyone in the world to get sick. So, because you arrived, uh, on the late, on the 22nd. Right. And uh, within a week of your arrival, I had been sick, you've been sick, uh, my wife has been sick, several of my friends have been sick. Um, yeah, it's just turned into a complete, you know, shit fest of being sick. But I mean, I'm better now. I was sick for like four or five days, but um, I, I, I am better now and uh, had a fantastic Christmas. I'm actually so super stoked. I know this is the dumbest thing in the world, but my f- most favorite <laughs> gift of all of the things that I got for Christmas this year, um, is I got a new cord for my headset. What? Okay. Yes, my headphones. Okay, so, so we your have headphones same, can we, undo. Like, yeah, really? Yeah, the, yeah. You can actually get uh, varying lengths of uh, headphone cable. Did you get your hot pink yeah, one? Uh, no, it's silver and gold, actually, with it with with braided cord now uh what happened was is about a month no about two months ago um i come home from work and all of the kids had been playing with the kids that had their friends over and all this kind of, and i come over and the actual piece that plugs into the headset proper was broken at the bottom and i'm like what the hell i and nobody fessed up to it i don't i was literally i had to jerry rig the stupid cord so that the headphones would work because it had cut out the right speaker and so i had uh had them jerry rigged for literally the last couple of months and i put them out on my secret santa list 
uh, with one branch of the family because it's so large, instead of having to buy nine different family members gifts, uh, we do a Secret Santa now. And um, I put on my Secret Santa list a direct link to Amazon to order this like $12.40 cable. And... Oh, it's so good. Man, that I person was, so... was like so relieved. They were like, oh man, Matthew's going to ask for this $80 box set of this hooshy mushy, <laughs> but instead he wants a $12.95 <laughs> cord. $12.40. It was $12.40. You have no idea. I finally, I'm just so happy because this thing is like m- so much more durable than the original cord that came with the headset. And I mean, these are $100 headsets. They're, they're not now. How big of they're a, how, how big of a box was it in? What did they put in a small box or? Oh yeah. They try to make I mean, it bigger. I want to say it's uh what it's about, Three and a half meters long, so what? About ten feet. Okay, it's about a ten foot long cable. But certainly, they didn't have it like completely stretched out in, in a no, in no, a no. It, it literally box. it fits. I mean, like think about like a gift card gift box. Sure, about that big. Okay, it was in there. And then b- below that, that wasn't all. Below that was a thirty dollar gift card to uh, Total Wine and More, my favoritist of favoritist alcohol purchasing places. And then I got a really uh, badass. Okay, so apparently you might hear it kind of rattling over here. So um, uh, the the big thing in terms of thermal stuff has been Yeti for like you know the last five years or whatever. And and so someone has finally come along and created a competitive thing called Arctic. And um, wait, thermal what? Underwear? No, no, uh, cups. Cups. Oh, cups. Coolers, cups, you know, yeah. That's why I said you might hear it rattling. That's my that's my water. Well, that could have been a lot of stuff. I, honestly, here, that does not sound like water rattling. Ah, well, I, w- I was getting there. I was getting there. And so I got a, I got a big 32-ounce uh, Arctic cup for Christmas as well. Um, and then I also got uh, some... I got a Doctor Who Christmas ornament, uh, which is a TARDIS. So of course, yeah. And then uh, also because another thing that I love is uh, you know Disney. So I also got uh, a set of six ornaments that were handmade uh, Mickey Mouse ornaments. So they have the little Mickey silhouettes done in kind of a a jewel kind of a thing, and uh, the wife and kids actually made those for me. So, but do you do you ever feel really cheaped cool. out receiving Christmas decorations on Christmas? No, I mean, what are you supposed to do? It was a Christmas gift, and there's no way to do it, you know, to Christmas, so I can have something open on Christmas Day. And now I've got them that last for you know um, the rest of my life. They'll always go on the Christmas tree and be proudly displayed. And because sometimes when you people get into stuff like me, like Disney and everything like that, you got to be careful because you get some kitschy stuff and it's okay to have a few pieces here and there. So, Oh look, you know, a little Disney section, you know, a couple of pictures or something, but some people like make their whole house Disney and, or like entire rooms, Disney or, or whatever it is that they're into. And it, it's, it that kitsch, which is cute and small knickknack things, becomes rather tacky as a whole. So something like this is really cool because uh, I get to put it up and display it at Christmas time, and it's up for a month of the year, and I always know who made it, and it'll look really cool, um, and I and great conversation pieces and whatnot. But then the rest of the year, 
it's safely tucked away with the Christmas stuff so that it doesn't turn into a whole bunch of tackiness that's like, oh, dear God, Matt, what the hell's the matter? But I guess what I'm saying is you like receiving a Christmas gift for Christmas on Christmas and then having to put it away two days later. Oh, that's what no. I was going for. Oh, okay. Oh, no, no. I don't mind. Not not, not okay. in that particular context. No, if it happened every year, okay. We, <laughs> might have, we might have a discussion, but nah. Man, I got, yeah. I did, I did well. I, I definitely scored some loot this year for Christmas. I was excited. Well, whenever I'm back later this year, I will give you my gift to you, which I guarantee would have made this list in some form or fashion. <laughs> yes, I guess due to sickness, due to illness, our planned, uh, our our planned Christmas gift time uh, did not occur. So. The sad part is, is that my my special California friend was supposed to partake in the gift that I got because it was a it was for two people, not just one, and now that won't get to happen this summer. So kind of sad. Well, your special California friend, which for our listener out there, if you, if you forgot, it's not me. I mean, because really, Matt and I hate <laughs> each other completely. But no, his favorite California friend is my significant other. And she very much misses you. And, and I mean, she came in late also. It's kind of a bummer with family. Well, I mean, the sickness was only part of it. I mean, it's kind of rough doing Christmas time. And then it was like family time. And then I got came into town. Then we had to do more family time. And then I got sick. And the whole testicle. Wait. What? Tonsillitis. Wait. Testicleitis. Testicleitis. The old. When you think a cold is coming, be aware. Testicleitis is right around the corner. You get some robot testicle for that. You want some robot testicle for the testicleitis? Oh. Pour some, pour some testicle on it. Just you know, got a broken leg. Pour some testicle on it. Rub a little iodine in that, and put some testicle at us. Ah, Robo testicle. Oh. <laughs> Robo testicle. You can find that right around the corner from the Jesus <laughs> Rancher. Ah, <laughs> oh, good times, good times. So, anyway, well, what about you though? What did you get? What we don't have know, time. Were you good this year? Did, Man, did you I mean, score some loot? Ah. Come on, fuck it, let's go. Well, I mean, if I, tell com- me what you got for Christmas. My gifts compared to your your you know your ornaments and cords and beer is like children's toys compared to that. I got a bicycle, which is cool. Dude, bicycles are like way expensive. Like good bicycles that you can use for going in town or also being able to use when you go out on your hikes and stuff. That shit's expensive. Totally, That's yeah. Awesome. We live like half a mile away from a beach with the beach path. So me See? and the significant other can go and ride the bicycles and, you know, kick children over while we're flying by <laughs> and pickpocket people on wheels. But it's always great going back to Christmas with my dad and, and staying with my dad because he always waits until the last minute because I think he's in when we were in kids mode still, like the, the 10 years that he played Santa Claus. Yes, I did say 10 years that my father played Santa Claus. I think he just never got out of that mode of doing late night shopping at a local 24-hour convenience store on Christmas Eve after we've gone to bed at 11.30 or midnight and then staying up with my mom and wrapping presents all night long because he's a very specific 
rapper when it comes to gift decorating. And so it takes him a long time to do just one package. So when you're a kid and you have like seven packages from Santa Claus or whatever, and they all have to be color coordinated, they have to look a certain way. So he was up until... God, I'm sure like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And then, of course, the kids would wake up at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, even earlier. You know, so I just think he's kind of in that mode. So every time I go back for Christmas, it never fails. I'm stuck in the toy aisle at Walmart at 4.45 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Every single time I go back with him and have to do shopping, it's on Christmas Eve. (laughs) And it just annoys the shit out of me. If you were in the spring Texas area, Tomball Spring Texas area, and you happen to be in one of the many 1,500 different Walmarts around there, and you saw somebody just crying and having a mental breakdown next to the Pet Shop Kids and Hungry Hungry Hippos board games, that would be me, <laughs> Robotesticle Tim. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. But, you know, I'm sure you'll look back on those times as more endearing than frustrating. It'll take some time, but I believe that you, I believe that you will. Well, I mean, it's not like when you're a kid and you know you hated going to Lowe's or Home Depot or shop for furniture when your parents when that was just excruciating. They had to shop for fucking furniture, you know, like that's just something they had to do. But doing your Christmas, all of your Christmas shopping at four forty-five p.m. on Christmas Eve, that's just like you know, you know what not to do. This is true. All right. Well, would you like to see what the old email sack looks like at the beginning Ooh, of 2017? Hopefully the year hasn't started off with a dryeth mail sack. It has. Unfortunately, it has. Yes. Uh, our email, which is, of course, the show at SLScast.com. Um, we, we would love to have anyone send something to it. So please feel like doing so and then just do it. Don't just feel like it. Just do it. Matt likes his sacks filled. True. I like them. I like them to burst suddenly, uh, <laughs> with with joy. And then, of course, we also uh, have the uh, Twitter handle, which of course is at the SLS Cast. So feel free to uh, follow us on there, and uh, of course, we'll mention you here on the show. Uh, so, without further ado, shall we get to the news, sir? We shall. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. Okay, and because I only have one piece of news, um... We're going to let Tim kick off 2017's news. But I promise you my one piece of news is really cool and fun, and we'll have some discussion about it. Um, But yeah, so we're going to just keep you in a little bit of suspense. So take it away, Tim! And all my news is long, boring, and no discussion. (laughs) (laughs) All right. From uh, thenewyorktimes.com, Tyrus Wong, Bambi artist, thwarted by racial bias, dies at 106. This year is written by Margaret Fox, and this came out on December 30th. 
And it says this, When Walt Disney's Bambi opened in 1942, critics praised its spare, haunting visual style vastly different from anything Disney had done before. But what they did not know was that the film's striking appearance had been created by a Chinese immigrant artist who took at his inspiration the landscape paintings of the Song Dynasty. The extent of his contributions to Bambi, which remains a high watermark for film animation, would not be widely known for decades. Like the film's title character, the artist Tyrus Wong weathered irrevocable separation from his mother, and, in the hope of making a life in America, incarceration, isolation, and rigorous interrogation, all when he was still a child. In the years that followed, he endured poverty, discrimination, and chronic lack of recognition, not only for his work at Disney, but also for his fine art, before finding acclaim in his 90s. Mr. Wong died on Friday at 106 years old. A Hollywood studio artist, painter, printmaker, calligrapher, greeting card illustrator, and, in later years, maker of fantastical kites, he was one of the most celebrated Chinese-American artists of the 20th century. But because of the marginalization to which Asian-Americans were long subject, he passed much of his career unknown to the general public. Artistic recognition, when Mr. Wong did find it, was all the more noteworthy for the fact that among Chinese immigrant men of his generation, professional prospects were largely limited to menial jobs like houseboy and laundryman. Trained as a painter, Mr. Wong was a leading figure in the modernist movement that flourished in California between the First and Second World Wars. In 1932 and again in 1934, his work was included in group shows at the Art Institute of Chicago that also featured Picasso, Martise, and Paul Klee. As a staff artist for Hollywood studios from the 1930s to the 1960s, he drew storyboards and made vibrant paintings as detailed as any architectural illustrations that helped the director envision each scene before it was shot. Over the years, his work informed the look of animated pictures for Disney in live-action films for Warner Brothers in other studios, among them The Sands of Iwo Jima from 1949, Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, and The Wild Bunch from 1969. But of the dozens of films of which he worked, it was for Bambi that Mr. Wong was belatedly most renowned. Uh, the article does go on for... Uh, actually, I didn't even read half of this article. It goes on for quite some time. Again, that was the New York Times... Dot com article, Tyrus Wong, Bambi artist, thwarted by racial bias, dies at 106. And do check it out. It's a fascinating story. And his paintings, not only with Bambi, an absolutely beautiful and if not underrated Disney film, are absolutely gorgeous. And for my next two pieces of news, both are Deadpool related. First up here from torrentfreak.com. Deadpool is the most torrented movie of 2016, and this is written by Ernesto. As 2016 nears its conclusion, we take a look at the most pirated movies of the year on public torrent sites. Deadpool comes out on top in a list that's heavily populated by superhero and comic movies without any major surprises. Every week, millions of people flock to torrent sites, searching for pirated copies of the latest blockbusters. At the end of the year, we take a look at what movies were pirated most often, and this year, Deadpool comes out as the clear winner. 
Pirated copies of the American superhero film first appeared early February, triggering millions of downloads during the months that followed. Even today, thousands of people are still actively sharing it. Superheroes and comics are doing very well on torrent sites this year, as the top three is completed by Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Captain America's Civil War. And further down the list, we also find X-Men Apocalypse and Suicide Squad. While file sharers may have a slight preference for geeky films, in general, there's high correlation between piracy and box office sales. That is, top-grossing movies tend to do well on torrent sites, too. With this in mind, it's no surprise that Finding Dory makes an appearance as well. The Pixar movie sold most tickets at the box office in the U.S. and comes in second worldwide. Independence Day Resurgence is somewhat of an exception in this regard, as it secured a spot in the top ten while being a relative flop in movie theaters, at least in the U.S. On the other side, Zootopia is missing despite being the third best grossing movie worldwide this year. Uh, And again, this article does go on for a few more paragraphs. That again was Deadpool is the most torrented movie of 2016 from torrentfreak.com. Matt, what do you think about this in particular? It doesn't surprise me because Deadpool is what you would call a crowd pleaser of a film. And when it's a crowd pleaser of a film, people will want to go back and see it. And I'm sure most of the people or a number of these people that uh, have gone back and paid money to see Deadpool at the movie theater have actually probably downloaded this movie to watch it once or twice at home. I can't really see people, they like the movie so much, they will torrent it and watch a pirated copy and just watch it over and over and over again from the comfort of their own home. But as for Independence Day Insurgents, that's also a movie that, yeah, didn't do too well at the movie theaters, But that's a movie that a lot of people were wanting to see because a lot of those people probably very much enjoyed the first movie. And once they heard that Resurgence didn't do that well at the box office or actually wasn't doing that well, and honestly, it's not that great of a film, you know, they didn't want to pay that ticket price to actually go see it. But yet their interest was still piqued to which they would still want to at least torrent it. Sorry, there was a question in there somewhere. Yes, yes, there was a question in there somewhere. Okay, so, um, honestly, no, when it comes to a movie like Deadpool, totally not surprised. Um, I mean, especially when you consider the audience, um, that, that is definitely running the gamut of people who are not just longtime comic book fans or whatever, but also, uh, Deadpool in the last five or six years has really become one of the, uh, bigger hits at the cons and given the type of people who are going to go yes those are probably the same uh, a large number of them are in the same group of people who would torrent regularly anyway so no that doesn't surprise me um, but also I think that they the majority of those people torrented either because they wanted to watch it before it was available on blu-ray dvd or whatever um, and most of those people clearly based on the numbers went and saw the movie in the movie theater anyway um, in terms of resurgence, though, I think I think pretty much everybody knew that movie was going to suck, and they that's why that one was a big torrent favorite of the year. If that answers the question that was in there somewhere. <laughs> Maybe they should have took some Robotorrent. Robotorrent. <laughs> does that work? Robotorrent. Yes, it does. It works well. <laughs> All right, so uh, my last piece of news before we get into your... Lengthy little article here from Variety.com. 
How Deadpool... Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to reference this article, which is the first article I came across that talked about this. From SlashFilm.com, Hugh Jackman hesitating after retiring Wolverine. Ryan Reynolds says Logan could be Oscar contender. This is written by Jacob Hall, and the article says this. Welcome to today's edition of your favorite comic book movie stars, Talk a Whole Bunch, where Hugh Jackman showcases some hesitation about officially retiring as Wolverine because he'd like to team up with Deadpool, you see, and Ryan Reynolds says Logan would be an Oscar contender. The roots of this first part were actually planted last month, when it was widely reported that Ryan Reynolds had filmed a cameo as Wade Wilson for Logan. Hugh Jackman's supposedly final turn as Wolverine. However, the rumor was quickly shot down by director James Mangold and Ryan Reynolds himself. But then Reynolds said that he'd love to see Deadpool and Wolverine team up in a completely separate movie, a dream complicated by Jackman preparing to leave the role behind after 17 years in nine movies. And that brings us to a new variety profile on Reynolds, where the actor talks about wanting to play Deadpool, quote, for as long as they would let me play Deadpool, end quote, and how he wants to make the team-up movie happen. The only obstacle is getting Jackman to stick around. Quote, I have no idea if I can change his mind. It's the audience. I would exclusively exploit that relationship to get Hugh back for another one, end quote. Jackman himself is quoted in the article where he seems to be hedging his bets about the whole thing. He says, quote, I'm hesitating because I could totally see how that's the perfect fit, but the timing may be wrong. End quote. If Logan is an enormous hit, it's entirely possible to see Jackman sticking around for another movie or two, even if it would deflate the whole swan song narrative that has built up around the film. And teaming up with Reynolds, who helped make Deadpool one of 2016's biggest movies, is a recipe for success. Meanwhile, Reynolds also says that Logan could be the first comic book movie to be a real Oscar contender, where he says, quote, Logan looks like a movie that might break that glass ceiling. I know firsthand that it's amazing. I've seen some of it. It's mind-blowing. It relies a lot on character. And all quotes there, uh, again, SlashFilm.com. Hugh Jackman hesitating about retiring Wolverine. Ryan Reynolds says Logan could be Oscar contender. Would you like to see a Logan and Wolverine and Deadpool team-up movie? I mean, I think people aren't really taking into consideration that there's a good chance Logan might die at the end of Logan. And I really don't see how you can really come back from that without, like, completely doing it all Deadpool style. But even doing the whole Deadpool breaking the fourth wall type of thing isn't a part of Wolverine. And it seems like you would need that to really make him coming back to life. Again, if he does die at the end of Logan, a thing that would work. Well, I, I can say it's it's something that's fun and easy to pull easier to pull off in the comic books. Um but no, I don't I, I don't see it happening and I don't think it should. I think especially with the way that they've um kind of let the Wolverine character evolve. Um nah. I would just leave it be. So anyway. Okay, so are we ready? Been waiting. We are. Ready? We are ready. I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing what this is about. All right, folks. Well, let's hope that you've taken your uh, robotesticles. So, uh, 
Six things. No, okay, I'm sorry. From dorkly.com by way of Tristan Cooper. In honor of 2017, here are six things that will definitely happen in 2017 according to movies. Okay? Yes. Tristan writes, We can all agree that 2016 was a rusty dumpster full of burning diapers rolling down a hill and into an orphanage, but it's hard to know if we were just unlucky or those 12 months are our new reality. Since we're all hiding in our homes for fear, uh, fearing for the worst anyway, we might as well look to the movies for hints on what's headed our way. So the good people at Dorkly dug through a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy films and one TV show uh, that take place in 2017 to see how much we're screwed. Hint, it's a lot. So number one, number one, yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger will be a star in the deadly future sport, The Running Man. <laughs> yes, yes. Um because clearly reality tv will will come to the point where we absolutely must have things like uh what's quoted in this article as arnold being assaulted by a fat dude in a tron suit modded with light bright bulbs yes cuz that actually happens in the movie <sighs> yeah there's also you know an idiot who gets ravaged by rabid dogs uh, on climbing for dollars. Cause you know, that's, that's fun. Um, and then let's not forget that uh, despite all of that, there really were Jesse Ventura workout videos. Um, number two, number two, Harry Potter sends his son to Hogwarts. Yes. Yes. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. The movie was in 2008. There's no way that if in 20 years after everything's happened, that that's going to be 2017. Ah, uh -uh. but you must remember, just like the article says, much of the Harry Potter series is set in the 90s, with the climactic Voldemort battle taking place in 1998. Flash forward 19 years, and everyone has settled down and spawned a brood of their own, eventually shipping them off to annoy, plague, and otherwise menace Headmistress McGonagall. Uh, and number three, number three, before we pause and let Tim jump in for reflection, 2017 Super Bowl will be the last one ever, thanks Tom Cruise. Yes, it'll be a while before Tom Cruise becomes a pre-crime police officer in Minority Report in the 2050s. Assuming he maintains his immortality, Cruise will eventually wander the remnants of Earth after an alien attack, maintaining local combat drones in the year 2077. That's according to the 2013 movie Oblivion, anyway. So... What does this have to do with 2017? Well, early on in Oblivion, cruise, uh, the cruise missile buzzes by a damaged drone that landed in the middle of a destroyed football stadium. And if you note the date, it says that the world champions are 2017. This was the site of the last Super Bowl before the alien invasion wiped out most everyone on the planet. 
So, yes, and Cruz, of course, seems to remember this game in vivid detail because, as we mentioned before, Tom Cruise is an angel's time lord. He then proceeds to playfully reenact the last-ditch Hail Mary play in front of everyone who saw Rock of Ages. Get it? Because the stadium's empty, because there's nobody there, because nobody saw Rock of Ages. Anyway, um, all right, so we're going to pause there. Tim, do you have anything that you would like? Do you foresee any of these three things happening? The Running Man? Uh, you know, Harry Potter sending his kids to Hogwarts and this year's Super Bowl is it? So far, I'm I'm excited for 2017. <laughs> Fuck football, man. Hey, there's only one good thing about football is that pizza delivery guys make bank. Uh, and that was one good thing. That I mean, I profited off of football, so I guess that I guess I could be a part of the problem, maybe. Uh, let's see. Uh, and, and as for Arnold Schwarzenegger, if he is the one that could die, I would watch that. But that also reminds me. <laughs> did you see what I titled our New Year's episode? Uh, yeah, it was like buzzing on or the running barbed wire. Yes. So if you notice, so the since our rebooted episodes, for every New Year's episodes, I combine the titles of two movies that are set in the next year. So the two movies I combined that came out that are based in 2017 were The Running Man and probably Pamela Anderson Lee's greatest acting achievement, Barb Wire. Which is interesting that you should mention that because number four on the list is, and I quote, Pamela Anderson works as a bounty hunter during the Second American (laughs) Civil War. That's right. If you were a 12-year-old straight male in the 90s and were lucky enough to have access to HBO, you've probably seen at least the first five minutes of Barbed Wire. It is in no way a classic or even a, quote, good movie, end quote, but it holds a special place in nostalgic preteen boners everywhere. That's in large part thanks to Pamela Anderson, who stars as the titular... <laughs> nice. Mercenary slash undercover part. exotic <laughs> Mercenary slash undercover exotic dancer slash classy club owner. Uh yes. So um it, it's fun. I mean the plot of the movie, as it states here in the article, is basically Casablanca, but set in the future. Seriously. So instead of World War II, it's Civil War II, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. <sighs> And since, since you seem to be rather um, prolific in terms of your ability to divine the future, can you guess what I'm going to say next, Tim? No, my high point was, was barbed wire. <laughs> Number five. Fat Adam Sandler celebrates the birth of Britney Spears' 23rd baby. <laughs> oh, click. Right, <laughs> click. Yes, yes. Oh, who click. who remembers that 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 classic? <laughs> the 2006 oh, wow. Adam Sandler movie Click isn't exactly what you'd call a sci-fi classic, but it does have one of the more embarrassing versions of the future. If you saw the movie or just watched the trailer, there's not much of a difference. You'd recall that this Christmas carolish comedy revolves around a TV remote that can control space and time. Instead of using this unbelievable device to feed the hungry or otherwise save innocent lives, Sandler, of course, decides this godlike power... Um, must be used to punch his boss in the face, ogler joggers bouncing boobs in slow motion to make America feel all around dumber for every laughing at his movies. 
<sighs> but yes, so it, I don't know. I, I find that while the movie is in some ways pretty ridiculous, it does manage to find the feels button on your remote and push it with great vengeance and furious anger. So you made hand job sound a lot less sexy. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm was going to make them sexy in the first place. All right, but finally, finally, uh, this is the only TV show that they found. Uh, it's a TV show, not a movie, but I have to agree wholeheartedly because this is pretty cool. So number six, Parks and Recreation was mostly dead on about 2017. And they say the following, okay, this one is a TV show and not a movie, but still Parks and Recreation did a pretty great job portraying the near future. The seventh season, which began in early 2015, jumped ahead a couple of years to 2017, bringing with it a few subtle and a few not so subtle wrinkles for the new era. Granted, it's a little easier to predict the future when you're so close to it, but a couple of moments in these last handful of episodes were truly prescient. One episode features a delivery drone, the first successful test of which Amazon just completed like three fucking weeks ago. <laughs> um, also, the Cubs won the World Series, which they uh, put into, which was also part of Parks and Rec. Um, and then they have tablets that like kind of come to life and want to eat you. But the one thing that they haven't gotten right yet uh, is elbow bedazzling. But we're still early. We're still early. Oh, wait, still you're, you're not into elbow bedazzling yet? N not yet, no. Not you don't yet. want to bedazzle your weenus with the... You don't <laughs> want to make it pretty? <laughs> well, you know, that would probably make hand jobs a lot less fun. So, Well, because you would have no. to... I mean, you'd have to, like, rest your elbow on it, and those are hand jobs of the past. You have to think about hand jobs of the future. I guess. You know what? I guess I'm just not forward-thinking enough. <sighs> but I don't know that you would want to bedazzle your penis anyway, because even if you weren't getting hand jobs, you're 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 you know hopefully going to get like a blowjob or something, and then why well, would I you never say anything about bedazzling your penis? I mean, I was just you know saying that bedazzling your elbow is the future. You just have oh, to. I thought not... you said weenus in there somewhere. Yeah, weenus. That's oh. your elbow, not penis. Oh, weenus. Penis. Ween. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, look what shows you what I know. Anyway. Um, I did not read anywhere near that whole article. There's plenty of pictures, GIFs. There's a couple of YouTube links and stuff in there. I highly recommend you read this whole entire article uh, and enjoy all of the things that are that there are to see. Uh, again, from dorkly.com by way of Tristan Cooper. Six things that will definitely happen in 2017, according to movies. So... Any other questions, comments, concerns? Anything you'd like to jump in on the remainder of that article, sir? Or are you just going to finish up the news? I like that there is a website called Dorkly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to finish the news up with this uh, last little article here from DailyMail.co.uk. And it says this, Is iOS 10.3 on the way already? Rumor claims Apple's update could debut this month with theater mode for texting during a movie. Yep, you heard that right. Theater mode on your phone for texting during a movie. This is written by Stacy Liberator for DailyMail.com, and it says this. 
Apple's iOS 10.2 may be just a few weeks old, but new rumors suggest the firm is set to release another software update this month. A pair of tweets hit the web on Friday that say an iOS 10.3 beta is scheduled to debut January 10th. Sources also believe the software will include a theater mode presented as a popcorn-shaped icon that dims the display and disables features to make devices suitable for movie theaters. All right. I don't understand how you you disable the features and that's supposed to make it more suitable for movie theaters if people are still going to be using the theater I mean, mode. I Okay. Uh, the news was leaked by Sonny Dixon on Twitter last Friday, who is known for sharing inside Apple details. The rumor iOS 10.3 update and whether it will really feature a theater mode has not yet been confirmed. However, Apple Insider explains that the new mode could quickly disable sound systems and haptic feedback, block incoming calls and messages, and reduce initial screen brightness during a movie. The new function could be similar to that iPhone's Do Not Disturb feature that mutes alerts when activated. Apple also owns a patent for theater mode, which it had published in 2012. The patent doesn't list theater mode, but describes similar technology that would be automatically activated by specific GPS coordinates in cellular triangulation. Quote, while the user is in the movie theater, the mobile device deactivates its cellular communications interface and or automatically sets the device to a silent mode. End quote, reads the patent published in 2012. Uh, and I guess, when the, quote, when the user leaves the movie theater, the portable device enable phone communication and or restores the ringer setting to the settings utilized prior to the device's deactivation, end all quotes there. Who's going to really remember to set that up? Like, if I would, I would think that if you care enough to do that, you're going to care enough when you go to a movie theater to put your cell phone on silent and not fuck around with your cell phone. I, I really don't understand this. Like, I understand they're doing this for people, but the people who aren't going to do it in the first place are not going to do it now. Matt? Comments, questions, concerns about this? Oh, as far as I'm concerned, this is just yet another reason to fucking be disgusted with Apple. Um, I mean, you, you're exactly right. Um, dude, I have it in theater mode. You're still fucking, like, texting in the middle of the goddamn movie just because it's kind of like saying, well, dude, I'm using a 45-watt bulb, not a 60-watt bulb. What? You're still turning on a goddamn light. I... Uh, no, yeah, and I don't know. I just, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you should just, you know, instead relegate these stupid fuckers to the back row. Like, make the back row the douchebag cell phone user row, so that at least they can't bother anybody. You know, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. So, and maybe when they sit down in the chair, it'll like activate a, a trap door under the fucking feet and or under the chair and then they die or something i don't know <laughs> and that's my news all right well that brings us to the end of the news then and moves us into i'm the only one who liked it who is the one that liked this movie not me who is the one that wants to watch again oh you 
Who is the one that wants to watch the movie? That was stupid. I'm the only one that liked it. That's me, folks, watching the movie. Oh man, I like that movie and nobody else did. Yes, and as we promised, here we are back in 2017, and since we're back in 2017, we're back with the bonus segment. And yes, uh, on this time for I'm the Only One Who Liked It, um, we're going to talk about a couple of movies, naturally. One that I like that most people don't, and one that Tim likes that most people don't. Now, here's the interesting thing about this one. The movie in and of itself actually did well for its time. And uh, if you go to like Rotten Tomatoes, whatever, actually even has a a high audience score. The problem is is that the movie is from 1976. And so when I say I'm the only one who liked it, it's because I'm the only one left. Because whenever I bring this up, nobody has heard of it. And the few people I can convince to watch the movie today um, won't stick it through mainly because um it's neil simon so it's it's very it's very much heavily scripted like a play um and it also has to deal with uh murder mysteries and so it's a parody of all the different murder mysteries um so you have like uh, oh gosh sydney wang right instead of uh, Charlie Chan. You have Dick and Dora Charleston instead of Nick and Nora Charles, right? Um, you have Milo Perrier instead of Hercule Poirot, right? So it's, it's these kinds of things and they're all there to solve a mystery. They're at this, they've all been challenged to solve a mystery, a murder. Uh, the, the winner, the, the person who solves the crime gets a million dollars, right? And so the, uh, most people today don't know who the people being parodied are. Um, and also 1976 sensibilities don't necessarily translate as well, even though the acting is fantastic. Um, it was, this movie is like, I want to say like seven or eight years before clue and maybe even closer to 10 years before clue. So, um, and you can see how well clue did, but it's just a damn fine movie. And if you, and that's the thing, it's so many caveats for someone to enjoy it. That's why I say I'm the only one who liked it because there's so many caveats. You have to know murder mysteries. You have to know, um, not just the novelizations, but you also have to, uh, at, or at least you need a passing familiarity with the novelizations so that you can understand what the popularity of the movies and the TV series that were wrapped around these characters at the time. You also have to know who people like David Niven are and Maggie Smith, coincidentally. That is, um, uh, what's her face from, uh, Hogwarts there, right? The 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 headmistress. <laughs> old woman in Harry Potter yeah. and old woman in Downton Abbey. Yeah, That's all you gotta know. There you you go. know exactly who she is. <laughs> she looks like a velociraptor from Jurassic yeah, Park. McGonagall. So yeah, and, and it's people I mean, seriously though, Alec Guinness is in this movie. Eileen Brennan, Truman Capote, James Coco, Peter Falk, um, Elsa Lanchester, all these so many of these people that most people don't know who they are. Um, and so again, there's just so many caveats going into liking this movie that I feel like anymore, I am truly the only one left who likes it. But this movie is absolutely hilarious. I highly recommend it. Um, uh, if for nothing else, 
Watch the movie just to see exactly how rapid-fire dialogue is meant to go um, and roundtable dialogue is meant to go. It is It works so very well in this movie. And it is such a bonus if you know who these actors and actresses are. It's also a super huge bonus um, if you know what's being parodied on screen. So 1976's Murder by Death. Take it away, Tim. I think you had me watch that uh, for the first time during the uh, when we first started the show, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think I did have you watch it um, way back in the original series, way back when. Way back I can't six remember. years ago, almost six years ago now. Yeah, no, can you believe that? No. Reminisce, like... reminisce, reminisce. <laughs> Walking through the park. Dances in the dark and reminiscing. That's that's right, Tim. That just happened. I think just we happened. connected in a really cool way. <laughs> will you will you be the roba to my testicleitis? Stop that. Oh, okay. Stop. <laughs> he didn't stop. You, I want you to be the roba to my tussin. <laughs> there you go. All okay. right. Go ahead, sir. What do you got? So my movie is 007's outing in The World is Not Enough. This is, of course, Pierce Brosnan's uh, – I said his name weird, weird. Brosnan's. I put an H in there. Pierce Brosnan's third outing as 007. Uh, the next one, Die Another Day, would be his fourth and final Bond appearance. The reason why I brought this one up is because I was with everybody else. I always said that Goldeneye was my favorite Bond movie. and during the month of November, I went back, November in the first part of December, I went back and rewatched all the James Bond movies, pretty much one Bond movie after the other. And so I was able to get a sense of which one to me felt like Bond movies and which ones absolutely did not. I realized that a lot of the Roger Moore movies, or a number of the Roger Moore movies, to me, were Bond movies. And only like a few of the... Uh, of the of the Sean Connery movies to me felt like classic Bond, even though they're all good for the well, not all of them are very good, but most of them are very good. But three of them to me felt like classic Bond. And then you get into the more obscure with In the Living Daylights and License to Kill, and then of course with Pierce Brosnan with Goldeneye, you know, it was the 90s. So they had to bring like a very 90s attitude towards the film. And so it feels very raw. It feels very rough. And yet it still has those Bond qualities to it. And then a couple years later in 97, I think, when Terrell Never Dies came out, it was a little more over the top. It was a little bit more, you know, silly where the bad guy is this media mongol. Mongol? Yes, he is a media mongol. This media mogul who is wanting to create all these wars so the newspaper that he creates can report it and he will become like, he will have the monopoly over news reporting because he knows when all this horrible stuff will happen. And, you know, it was just really over the top. And therefore, the movie was not as good as I remembered it to be, because when I went to go see it, I was nine, I think. Uh, but when World Is Not Enough came out, I went and saw it with my dad, as I did with Goldeneye. But I went to go see The World Is Not Enough with my dad, and I remember watching it and thinking, 
this is actually a goddamn good movie. It's entertaining. It feels like a Bond flick. It feels like one of the better Sean Connery movies, and definitely one of the better Roger Moore flicks. It just has all the qualities we like about Bond. Yes, Denise Richards does play a scientist or something like that. Yeah, her acting isn't spot on. Usually the women in those movies aren't really that great at acting, but they look great. And even though Denise Richards has become a joke, for one reason or another with some people. She looked great, and in the 90s, she was that 90s, late 90s babe. So it still works. And especially watching this, I mean, I haven't seen it in over 10 years now. It's just a very entertaining movie. The twists and the turns, even though I knew what to expect, they still had their moments, and they still stuck. Um, the action is spectacular. The special effects that they do use isn't too all over the place and crazy, and it actually aged pretty well. All the stunts, though they are over the top and pretty bizarre, they still work, because most of the stunts in James Bond are over the top, and the good ones though they might have aged a little bit, are still entertaining, and they're cheeky, and they're likable. There's just something to them. Budget was $135 million, and it made $361 million. A lot of people consider this to be one of the worst James Bond movies. Yes, people find that Die Another Day is better than this film, for whatever reason. And I, I enjoy Die Another Day for what it is, but... I don't, I don't, when I think about this movie, there's so much to like about it. Everything from the action to the story, which I haven't even told you, (laughs) but the story is about uh, basically uh, uh, there's an assassination on this uh, billionaire who goes by the name of Sir Robert King, uh, and the person who assassinated him him was a terrorist named Renard, and uh, basically Bond is tasked to protect the assassinated billionaire's daughter, who is Electra. And Electra is wonderfully played by Sophie Marceau, who we never see anymore. And other plots are uncovered by Bond as he is protecting Electra King, the daughter of this assassinated billionaire. Who it actually turns out that Electra, at one point, was held hostage by the terrorist Renard, who killed her father. And so it, there, it's, there's more to it. I mean, he does fall in love, he does get betrayed by people, and he does find a new love with, uh, with uh, Denise Richards. It's just a fun... Slightly over the top, but again, still nuanced and a classic, in my mind, Bond film, especially for Pierce Brosnan. Uh, So that is why I'm the only one who liked The World Is Not Enough. Right on, right on. All right, man. Well, that brings us to the end of I'm the Only One Who Liked It. Next week, uh, we're going to have a very special discussions uh, segment. We're going to be discussing the film Postcards from the Edge. Now, we're actually going to go out of our way to watch the movie, but we're not watching it in terms of uh, critique or trying to rate it or anything. So there's not going to be any kind of ratings on the movie. But... This is a movie that's based on a book um, by Carrie Fisher that was actually about her relationship with her mom, Debbie Reynolds, both of whom passed away within just a few days of each other, uh, right at the tail end of 2016. So we thought it would be nice to actually watch the movie and then just kind of talk about it. Um, And that's what we're going to do for our our bonus segment is have a discussion 
of the film Postcards from the Edge. And without further ado, I believe that brings us to the movies, does it not, sir? It does, indeed. Well, then, here we go, folks. It's the movies. And this week's movies are Rogue One and La La Land. So, where do you want to start first, sir? Why don't we save Rogue One for last? Okay. Then we shall start with La La Land, American romantic musical comedy drama film. Written and directed by Damien Chazelle, stars Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, John Legend, and Rosemarie DeWitt. And this basically is the story of a musician and an aspiring actress who meet and fall in love in Los Angeles. Uh, circa 70s, 80s-ish, basically. Um, so here's what we wait. Have. Do you say circa 70s or 80s? Well, is okay. No, I guess it's not. It I'm thinking totally because of the stupid 80s. It takes place current day. Their phones, no, I know. And stuff. I'm, I just keep, yes, I know. I keep thinking about the stupid 80s pop cover band and all that shit. And I was thinking because it happens over, it doesn't happen immediately when he does that and then he goes back to the 80s band. Oh, yeah. Um, and and that's like literally months later. And so I was just, I have that stuck in my head. You're right. I apologize. <laughs> this does not take place in the 80s. I just, that's, it's kind of set in my head that way, especially with the stylizations and some of the other things that go on with the movie, like their little duet where they're singing about how they would rather be somewhere else or whatever. I can't even think of the damn. A Lovely Night, I think is it. Yeah. Anyway, so so many different so many different songs. Um, okay, so well, basically, Ryan Gosling is uh, playing Sebastian. He is a guy who is desperate to make his own way as a um, as a pianist. Um, he loves jazz, has dreams of opening his own club and everything. Of course, Emma Stone is, plays Mia, and she is a starlet as it were um or an, at least an aspiring starlet in hollywood and um they cross paths it doesn't go well for either the either of them as as it were but they do eventually cross paths again where this time they come together and yet can they go through life and live their dreams together and make their dreams come true now I thought that this movie makes a very strong case for why the musical should be revived in film. I thought this this movie was absolutely fantastic. Um and I did have my um reservations going in mainly because while it's pretty clear to the seasoned moviegoer that this is a musical if you looked at the trailer a certain way um it's kind of bait and switchy uh because it doesn't necessarily present itself as a musical per se um and so 
you go into that wondering exactly how they're going to bring those musical elements out of it. And if you think to the, uh, basically to the last big musical that was, you know, all the Oscar buzz and, uh, and everything, you're pretty much left with Chicago from like 2003 or something like that. Um, one of the reasons that movie did so well in terms of the musical was because of the way they interjected the music in and of itself, the actual numbers. Uh, here, they forego any kind of semblance of imagination or, um, or, or contrivance for the reason why they sing. It's just a musical. And I think that that, I think that honesty in the presentation is good. And that's why, again, I was really kind of concerned with the way the trailer presented the movie. Um, in terms of the acting and the performances, uh, you know, Emma Stone's got a very nice voice. Not the biggest fan of Ryan Gosling's singing. Um, but th it's not that they're bad. I don't want to say that they're bad. They can clearly carry a tune. And quite frankly, what I was most impressed with was the fact that they actually really committed to the choreography. Um, and, uh, and it's and it's something that is i think a high point of the movie i think the cinematography is really really cool and of course the music goes without saying is fucking fantastic but we get to where i have some problems with the movie now the only problems that i have with the movie are i i don't uh, ryan gosling um I, I wasn't buying his performance overall. And I think we've all established over time that, you know, the guys here on the SLS cast, we dig Ryan Gosling. So um I, I just, I don't know that he was in over his head or out of his depth. I don't want to say that, but I really think that he was the weak link in the pairing. Um Again, fair voice. I wasn't really that into it. I thought that he really committed in terms of the choreography and stuff like that. And when he was acting, I liked it. When he transitioned to the singing and the dancing, a little less so. And I felt like it was, instead of just keeping me engaged and enjoying the musical for what it was, I felt like I was kind of taken out of it a little bit. The other thing that I did not like about this movie, um, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but me personally, I did not like the end of the movie. Now, I, I, I have no problem with the way it was presented, um, because there, there, that's a very key thing. Um, I have no problems with the presentation of the ending, and I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea of the story itself having the ending that it had, but I think that um, I think there was a way, I think there was a way to tell this story without having a traditional ending, but at the same time, not having, uh, the ending that was presented that while not your typical happy ending that would just be cliched was its own in its attempt to not be a cliched, happy ending came off as a cliched ending anyway. And 
and and and and I did not like that. I did not like that. But I don't want to say that the presentation was bad because it is a it is a it is a very good ending number that you know in terms of actually just um having the movie you know end or the musical itself as a finale number so with all that being said and i apologize if i'm a little all over the place um i say four point uh, i'm sorry 4.5 out of five it's a fantastic movie and i really think you'll enjoy it i hope that you will uh give this movie a chance and i hope that it uh will that if if it doesn't if musicals don't do it for you i hope that this will actually make a case for why musicals should do it for you what do you got there tim and i really like the ending i think i would have liked this movie a whole lot less if the movie didn't end the way it did cuz i well that that's going to be a slight spoiler little section when i when i get to that part because it's kind of integral to my rating and i'll i'll go into more detail about that at the end of this here review but i want to start off with a few really good things about this movie because i i don't know that sounds a little frightening i guess to all those who are worried that i'm going to give this a really bad review but it it's a good movie i think when they're not singing and the actual story is taking place through the dialogue and the interactions and just the movie is playing out. It's a great movie. The story is very timely, especially nowadays, given how a lot of people in Hollywood, I work with them, I see them, I interact with them, and in some way I'm very much one of them. We all have dreams that we want to succeed. And I don't think until it actually happens we really don't understand the consequences of achieving those dreams. What exactly do we have to give up, especially in order to achieve that? And this is what this movie is about. And I really like that. It was just, it was, it was really cool to see how this movie played out in that way. And again, it's a very relevant film for the modern time. Uh, the movie itself captures the L.A. vibe almost perfectly. All the the costs of following your dreams, uh, the magic of L.A. and the gentrification and the horror of that gentrification. <laughs> you see all these great old movie theaters, all these great murals on the side of these buildings, the secret clubs with the piano bars, which I must say are too far, too few in between. Um... There aren't as many of those around as this movie kind of lets on to believe, especially where him and her first meet. In fact, that mural that you see when she walks by, there's no club right there. I'm pretty sure that's just kind of like an alleyway door or a door that leads into the back of like a, like a, I think that's like a, either a church. I think that's a, honestly, I think that's like a church's chicken that that door leads to the back of, I can't, or Popeye's or something. I can't remember, but that's okay because that still captures the magic of the the scene in in the Hollywood area. I lived very close to where a lot of this movie was shot at, so I'm very familiar with the Rialto Theater, which is a really beautiful theater that got closed down. I believe now it's in Urban Outfitters. Um, there's always this sense of dread and worry that a, a, a historic landmark like a theater, like a historic house will be shut down or will be knocked down and some new condominium development will take its place. Unfortunately, Unlike in other parts of the country, Los Angeles doesn't have a really good, man, I can't think of the word right now, but just laws in place to protect some of these beautiful 
historical monuments, and a lot of them have really fallen into, into disarray. And with me, granted, I was not around when, during the hustle and bustle and while all this was thriving, but I have been long in, around uh, here at a time when I can go to places like Quentin Tarantino's New Beverly Theater, which is in an old vaudeville theater. But even before he bought it, the entire theater almost went down. Uh, completely. I'm lucky enough to go to the original Landmark Theater, which shows all these great movies. The uh, the Fox Theater, the Paramount Theater, the Excalibur Theater, which is now something else owned by Disney, the Hollywood Theater, the Pantages, all these great theaters that one day could not be here anymore. The movie kind of touches on all that. Ryan Gosling's character plays an old soul that a lot of us here kind of share the same values as he. We don't want to see all the old stuff get torn down because it represents the past when the when everything was so much better. And the character, I, I, I kind of see myself a lot in the character. I guess that's why I was able to kind of look past his really kind of cheesy, over-the-top, old-fashioned dialogue where nobody talks like that here. Uh, I've never really encountered anybody just that kind of pretentious in that sort of way. But I totally feel him when it comes to jazz in L.A., how nobody ever looks at it like a real art form anymore. Jazz doesn't have to reinvent itself into more of a pop standard for it to be cool and relevant again. Other landmarks, like the Lighthouse Cafe, where they go to that jazz club, is actually right down the street from where I currently live in Hermosa Beach. I don't live in Hermosa Beach, but that's in Hermosa Beach. And, like, that's another place that I'm very much lucky to go to that actually was almost torn down just a handful of years ago. That's my long way of saying that this movie and those themes, when it touches on those themes and aspects, are very relevant to what's going on now as to how people feel about Los Angeles, especially us old souls. Now, that's pretty much the end of my praise for this film. Really, my main issues is that these two aren't dancers. Emma Stone can sing, Ryan Gosling cannot. Emma Stone doesn't have a powerful voice. She has a pretty quiet voice. It worked for that ending song, Her, I guess it's called Audition or something like that. That's when I think it worked the best. These two are not dancers. Even though Emma Stone did appear in Chicago on Broadway, I never saw it, so I don't know how her dancing was in that in that show. But they're both not dancers. In fact, when you have the an American in Paris homage at the end of the movie, when they turn into silhouettes and they go into the sky and space and stuff and they're floating around, when all that really impressive dancing, you don't actually see them. And I went with my significant other, and she turned around and said after the movie, that wasn't them. Because you can see a a, a stark contrast from their dancing in person, when you can actually see them in full light, to when it's their silhouettes, and they're doing all this really cool dancing. To me, if you're trying to be like a classic film, which this movie is trying so, and people are labeling this just like the old classics, this is just like an old Fred Astaire movie. It's not like an old Fred Astaire movie or a, a Gene Kelly film because you see them dancing, you see them having fun, and they're talented at doing both dancing and singing. The entire film, they're dancing and singing, and you can tell it's them. There's no trick shots. It's not, uh, style doesn't outdo the substance of the dancing. The dancing might be stylized even, but the filmmaking is not. And this is what this movie is lacking. The talent 
in front of the camera. Because the movie is pretty, the movie is glossy, the movie is very good. But man, does this movie fail at the dancing and the singing. And it's not exactly what it's cracked up to be. This movie presents itself as a classic song and dance movie. It's not. And I just feel like it's fooling people. And I like that people are enjoying it and taking it for what it is. And that's fantastic. But I just can't get over the fact that it's not what it's cracked up to be. It's making itself, again, to look and feel like one of these classic Hollywood dance film, dance and singing films. But it doesn't hit those same marks when it absolutely needs to in order to really and fully pull it off. And the talent is there. It's directed by the guy who did Whiplash, which is a great movie. And I I love Emma Stone and I love Ryan Gosling. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with with that aspect. It's just, I I don't know. I I just don't know. I think they might have needed more time to work on this film. But really, the ending is what did it in for me. Again, the movie builds up. You have two lovers, and again, slight spoiler here, two lovers that are destined to be stars in their own right. One wants to be a musician, the other one wants to be an actress. Again, they're going to have to split apart. And the whole idea is... Will they be able to stay together and work together? Or in order to achieve their own dreams, will they have to move away? And I really, really do like that aspect because that's how it is. For a number of people, that's how it is. That's why it's difficult for couples who are both actors or both in the entertainment profession to stay together because they're not willing to give up their dream, their passion, what they would die for, for something like, love. And that is kind of sad. And that is where this movie works completely, because it's not a sad movie. In some way, it's incredibly happy, because they're able to do it. And it's bittersweet. I'm being a little too overzealous in my review for this movie, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's a really good movie, but it is very much flawed. So I'm going to stick with 3.5 out of 5. I hope to appreciate it more on repeated viewings, but for the story itself, it's just a damn good story. So 3.5 out of 5. All right, well then, moving straight into Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Uh, 2016 American epic space opera film directed by Gareth Edwards and written by uh, Chris Wheats and Tony Gilroy. Uh, let's see, the film stars Felicity, Felicity Jones, Diego Luna, Ben Mendelsohn, Donnie Yen, Mads Mikkelsen, Alan Tudyk, Jin Wen, uh, Riz Ahmed, and Forrest Whitaker. Um, and basically, this is the movie where they get the plans to the Death Star. Okay? That, that, that's what this movie is. Now, what I like, one of the things that I like about this movie is that you could literally know Jack and shit about Star Wars and Jack's left town. And you could walk into this movie and be completely entertained because you don't need to know anything about this, about anything Star Wars period to walk into this movie and be able to watch it. So, uh, this movie truly is a standalone movie. And, uh, I thought that it was exceptionally well done. There are a lot, there are a lot of wonderful nods to this movie. 
um, or to all of the other movies, including things like the Clone Wars series, as well as Star Trek Rebels, uh, which is the current kids series that's on Disney, uh, Disney XD or Disney Channel, whatever. Um, they have throwbacks to the prequels. They have specific nods to A New Hope. Um, a whole bunch of stuff that you, if you're a fan of the series, you're just going to get so much out of. And yet at the same time, you don't need um, to know anything in order to enjoy it. And yet there are some people who detract from the movie because it's like, you know, they they want you to assume so much about Star Wars um, because otherwise, if you don't, there's, there's like plot holes and things of that nature. Um, I disagree with that. There are people who have that opinion. I disagree with that. But at the same time, uh, for the sake of argument, if that were true, it doesn't matter because the vast majority of people who are going to watch this movie are already Star Wars fans and or people who are uh, at least having a passing familiarity with Star Wars. So, um, I think that... For what this movie does and the story it's trying to tell and the way it chooses to tell it, uh, there's so much going right for it. And the only thing that I really, really was bothered by, and this is where almost everything is docked from, is spoiler alert, because there's just no way to do this without saying without spoilers, but most people probably already seen this anyway. Um you 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 cannot have um oh good lord grand moff tarkin okay peter cushing played grand moff tarkin he died a long time ago and so they brought him back they actually had an actor uh, by the name of Guy Henry, come in and play him, who does a great job of sounding like him. And and he does a great job of embodying the style uh, and the stylization of the characterization that is Grand Moff Tarkin. The problem is, is it is so ungodly obvious that we're in the uncanny valley where, when it comes to the CGI on this character um, is just... No, God, no. And they did it really, really briefly as well um, with Princess Leia. Uh, but hers, I'll give a pass to because they only did it for like five seconds and she only had one word uh, that she said. So, okay, I'm willing to give it a pass. But they actually had Cushing, that Grand Moff Tarkin was an integral character. And the thing is, is that I can understand the wanting to do that because one of the great things about this movie is that it really makes you understand so much more about Star Wars, about Episode Four, Things like people who always pick on... Star Wars going, you've got this big hyperspace station planet destroying fucking thing and you left a six foot hole in it that you can immediately blow up the whole goddamn space station? Seriously? Who does that? This movie answers that question and why. Um, it, it, you know, um, why does Darth Vader at the beginning of, uh, A New Hope act like a fucking, you know, loud, angry, 
shift manager who's just been told he has to close after he opened that day. Um, this movie answers that question, especially when the whole other times you've ever seen Darth Vader, he's pretty much cool as a fucking cucumber. Um, all of this stuff, all these kinds of things are answered um, with this movie. But dear God, the CGI reliance, especially on a character as important as Grand Moff Tarkin, they should have done something else. They, I don't know what else they should have done, they, but it should have not been this. Um, it just broke everything when that the movie was doing every time it came up. Outside of that, though, I thought the the majority of the performances were outstanding. Um, yes, there are some kind of wishy-washy things, but not enough that it's really going to um, hurt anything. Uh, you're definitely going to like it. Yes, you know, again, because we're already talking about spoilers. Yes, everybody dies in the end because this is the whole point of the movie. Um, but it's okay because I like the way that they wrote them in. Um, so I give this one 4.25 out of five. Uh, the, the over-reliance on CGI, especially when it came to some of to technically a main character of the movie, um, was unnecessary. And also in some, and like I said, in some of those other characterizations, uh, like Donnie Yen, who's the blind guy that believes in the force or whatever, um, you know, the whole, I am one with the force and the force is with me. I am one with the force and the force is with me. Um, that kind of mantra stuff gets kind of dumb by the end of the movie. So it's things like that. Um, but those are minor. Those are very minor. And you will come to appreciate the quirks of the characters such as they are. Um, it's just that goddamn CGI fucking Grand Moff Tarkin. God pisses me off. Oh, Jesus. 4.25 out of 5. Bring us home there, Tim. If it says anything, I still give this movie a 3.5 out of 5. And and really, that 3.5 out of 5 is only credited to the final 45-50 minutes of this movie. Because, holy shit, what a great space battle that was. And what a great use of effects of new and old. And I thought the st storytelling, taking it for what it is, was actually done pretty damn well. They had great tense moments. It was a great thrill ride. And it was everything I've wanted to see in a fun action uh, set. Well, I guess you'd call it action set piece of a big film. I kind of wanted to see something like that in The Force of Awakens. So this really kind of this really whetted my appetite for a another Star War, for the next Star Wars movie next year. Because originally I wasn't too excited about Rogue One until I started hearing more things about it. And so I I didn't know what to expect and really man, it was the last again 45 minutes it, the movie really kicked it up into high gear. But again, I still rated this movie 3.5 out of 5. Initially, after the movie, I was going to rate it up 4. But after many days of mulling it over now, I quickly dropped it that half star. I'm going to read to you what I wrote right after seeing this movie. Once getting past the unrelentless member berries moments and you get used to the fact that this is a Star Wars movie for the Star Wars fans... It's a good movie, which takes about 50 minutes into the movie to realize this. 
The characters are boring, bland, and the dramatic core of the movie feels rushed and forced. We're supposed to care about Jen Erso and her father. We really don't know much about this relationship, other than what we are told. Yet this is half of the plot. Jen Erso and Saul Guerrera, Forrest Whitaker, who plays Saul Guerrera, Jen Erso and Cassian Andor, Diego Luna, their relationship attempt felt unestablished and grounded, for example, and K250. Again, these are the characters that I felt overall were boring, bland, and uh, dramatic to their core. The movie is also genuinely humorless. K250 provides all the cheap and obvious jabs while everyone else is being drab. The movie honestly doesn't become memorable and truly exciting until a little past the halfway mark. The original Star Wars films are memorable because they are full of memorable moments, characters, and storytelling. Those moments are not conceived for fan service, but because it was to be accessible to the story itself. Rogue One lacked the backstory and the genuine emotion, and it felt comprised of things to cater towards everybody, especially the fans. Too safe, I feel. Lastly, the CGI people are horrible to watch. Leia looked like a wax doll, and Grandma Tarkin didn't have to... <laughs> didn't have to have so much screen time. Be more creative and artistic. That was actually the most positive thing I wrote about this movie. I and, and, I, and I did leave this movie feeling like it was really super entertaining, but again, it took 50 minutes to get there. And I did say Grandma Tarkin, because he does look like an old woman that I, I've, I've come across at some point in my life. But I did not make up Grandma Tarkin, because his name is Grandma Tarkin. Uh, some guys from the YouTube channel Red Letter Media came up with that one. So since I called him Grandma Tarkin, I should throw that in there. But after thinking about it and realizing that, you know, Rogue One did lack all this backstory and genuine emotion and that it mostly was fan service for the first 50 minutes, I also thought that the moments that really create an emotional connection was not there. And I did mention between Jin Erso and her father, because you kind of get a backstory between them but not much backstory. You really don't ever see them interact. You really don't understand how much of a loving father he really is. You just see them together because at the beginning of the movie, they're having to be taken, you know, torn apart from one another. You just don't get that sense of a, of a genuine father-daughter family relationship because it just happens so fast. The disconnect happens so fast. I thought, like, a big plot point that I would have liked to have seen to help make this movie stand on its own more. I think they should have had them not only just steal the plans, but they should have actually tried to destroy the Death Star in some way while they were on that planet. Like, try to shut down the system. But in some way, they couldn't shut down the system, and the only thing that they could do was to steal the plans for the Death Star. I think that would have been a really good climactic point for that for these characters you know like they're trying to get the plans but they realize you know instead of getting the plans we have an opportunity why don't we take this opportunity to destroy the death star and actually end this once and for all their plans get foiled somehow and then it finally dawns on them it's like we might not make it out alive but maybe we could actually get these plans 
out of here before we all die. And we're really lacking, again, that moment, that emotional connector to really have all these characters really come together at the end. So it really feels like they actually stood for something and did something that was absolutely magnificent and totally worthwhile. Um, Not just because they were stealing some plans. That's great and all, but, you know, if they had a chance to go out in a blaze of glory, why don't they just at least attempt to blow up the whole entire fucking thing and try to end it themselves? The main reason why it feels like that this movie does not stand on its own, it is because of context. It mentions the Force, Invader, and a lot of stuff like that, fan fodder, But we're never told who Vader is. We're never told what the Force is. We don't have that grasp. And what I've read in countless of other interviews, and not interviews, but articles about what people say about this and that about Rogue One, uh, one interesting thing that I did agree with that I've read from a couple people is that even in, uh, in Empire Strikes Back and even in Return of the Jedi, they kind of go back and explain the force in some way they talk about how the force how it uh how how it how it is relevant to the story and to these characters what what are they fighting for not necessarily the force but the core emotion the core uh the core themes of the story are reintroduced in each movie of the original three films obviously but not really in this one. You're given the plot, you're given these characters, and then they're off on this men- on, off on this mission. And it's just really, again, missing the context, and most importantly, missing those moments, which I guess to me, context is more important than the moments. Originally, I thought that this movie was better than Force Awakens, because again, the last 50 minutes of the film... But when it comes down to it, The Force Awakens had those moments, and for for what it was, it had that context that these movies really should all encompass. And that is why I give this one 3.5 out of 5. It's still a good movie, it's still entertaining, and it's worth checking out on a big screen and in 3D. But before going off and saying that it's an absolutely amazing movie, just keep in mind that there are major differences between this and the original films. So 3.5 out of 5, Rogue One, a Star Wars movie for me. All right, that brings us to the end of the movies. And next week's movies are going to be Fences, Manchester by the Sea, and A Monster Calls. So, I think that is all for this week. Our return to 2017, as it were, or our welcoming of 2017. And I think we are now ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes, favorite us on Stitcher, Stitcher Radio, and of course, look us up on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Felicity Jones, I get to say this. 
But for everyone, I think, there is always a pressure to conform. And I guess as you get older, you realize it's less interesting to do that. It starts with you, though, saying, I know what I like doing, and that's what I'm going to do. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>